Hey everyone, I'm Andrea Ferretti, and this is episode 123 of Yoga Land. Today, I'm so excited to welcome Dr. Will Cole to the podcast. Will Cole is a doctor of functional medicine, and he is the author of the new book, Ketotarian, which combines the ketogenic diet with a mostly plant-based approach. I actually discovered this book probably six to eight months ago when I was sitting on my couch one night looking for a ketogenic cookbook on Amazon. And I just couldn't find anything that looked palatable to me. And then I found his book and it was sort of, it was like a pre-release, you know, this book will be published on this date. Click here if you want to order it. And I was really excited because it looked great. And if you are at all familiar with the ketogenic diet, you know that that in some ways it feels really anachronistic because it's there's a lot of emphasis on eating a high amount of fat, which makes sense. That is a, an integral part of the diet. But there's also, because of that, a lot of high fat meats are encouraged. So his approach to me is just much more in line with a yoga lifestyle and much more in line with being conscious about the environment, being conscious about what you put in your body, being conscious about the long term. I've mentioned my own experience and reasons for doing the ketogenic diet in previous podcasts just briefly. I will tell my own story at the end of this podcast in case you are interested in hearing it. I won't I won't front load it too much because I want to get to the interview. But I will say just right up front that I started doing the diet for very specific health reasons. And I've always kind of wondered as it's gained momentum and become really, really popular and everyone's sort of talking about it and people always ask me about it if they know I do it. As it's gotten trendy, I've really, really wondered, is this actually a reasonable diet for someone who doesn't have a specific health health problem because it's very limiting and it's very hard you know studies have shown that it's really really hard to sustain a very limiting nutritional plan for the long term so one of the things i really appreciate about Will Cole, and he talks about this in the podcast, is that he's not actually advocating for a permanent, super strict ketotarian diet unless you need to, like I need to. But he's advocating for trying this out because it can help promote metabolic flexibility. And that's just really interesting to me because there are a lot of people in this country, I think the estimate is like one out of three people have are on their way to having a metabolic issue like prediabetes or uh, metabolic syndrome. And then there are also many of us who are suffering from autoimmune disorders. And a lot of people do well on the ketogenic diet because it's when it's done correctly, it's anti-inflammatory. Anyway, I obviously am very excited about this topic, topic because I'm going on and on a little bit more than I usually do. I hope that you enjoy and learn from the interview, and I just I hope that it supports you in your own life and in your own health. Thanks so much for listening. Also, thank you for all of the reviews for the last podcast. It was like more than I'd gotten in such a long time, and I just appreciate reading them so much and hearing from you and what you're enjoying. I will put show notes at yogalandpodcast.com slash episode 123 with a link to Will's book and a link to his website and a link to one of my own blog posts about cutting out sugar. Well, my listeners know that I'm a breast cancer survivor and Since going on tamoxifen, I became pre-diabetic, and I actually also had gestational diabetes, and my grandmother had type 2 diabetes. So that was the motivation for me to go on a ketogenic diet, and my ketogenic diet actually did reverse my my pre-diabetes completely. But I've gotten a lot of questions over the years about doing a podcast on keto, and I've always felt like I'm not a scientist. I'm not a doctor. I'm not prepared for this. So I'm so glad you're here. And I wonder if we could just start by having you explain to people kind of the basics of the ketogenic diet for anyone who's not familiar. Ketogenic diet, there's two two forms of fuel that our body has metabolically. We could burn sugar for fuel or fat for fuel. And most 
people in the West are in varying forms of being in sugar burning mode. And it's akin, it's akin to uh, kindling on a fire. It's, it will create a burst of light, uh, form of fuel. But as anybody that has made a campfire will know, it's, it's short, short lived. And you have to keep putting more and more kindling on the fire to maintain that light and maintain that energy. And you have more dirty kindling, which is a, more the Western diet with its refined carbohydrates and sugar and junk food. And that's dirtier kindling. And then you have more of a clean kindling, cleaner kindling, which is the more real foods way of eating and whole grains and sprouted grains and legumes. But ultimately, those foods, even though they're real whole foods, break down into sugar and they are a cleaner form of kindling. It's better than the standard American diet, but mm -hmm. just, be, just because something's better does, doesn't mean it's optimal. And the other form of fuel, metabolically speaking, is ketosis or fat burning. So this is our own fat that we have in our bodies, if we have any, or the fat, healthy fats that people eat for, for, for fuel. So this allows your body, by lowering your carbohydrates and focusing more on healthy fats, this allows your body to naturally produce ketones, which our liver naturally produces it. And the main ketone that all of the, or I should say most of the research that's being done is beta-hydroxybutyrate or BHB. And this is that this main ketone that researchers are looking at that are, yeah, it's of course, a form of fuel. So it's it's akin to fire on the lo or log on the fire it is longer burning it's more sustainable you have to you have to put less logs in the fire because it burn, burns more slowly mm -hmm. so this is healthy fats this is the ketones it gets people off of this sort of blood sugar roller coaster of kindling constantly throughout the day just to maintain their energy and they can they can get hangry and irritable and moody if they don't have that kindling on every few hours. This doesn't happen for somebody that has a log on the fire that is keto adapted or fat adapted. But beyond the metabolic fat burning state that this is metabolically speaking, from a functional medicine standpoint that I love ketosis so much is that its benefits on the brain passes through the blood brain barrier. It's sort of clean brain fuel. It passes through the cell membrane. Uh, so it actually, actually increases mitochondrial biogenesis or by actually making new mitochondria. And this is their cellular energy. So it actually restores and improves cellular energy, brain energy. But the most exciting aspect of ketosis that I love is it's a strong anti-inflammatory. So it's a it works on all these pro-inflammatory cytokines, it decreases something called NF-kappa B, which is this pro-inflammatory cytokine that is associated with a lot of chronic health problems. It increases something called the NRF2 pathway, which is this pro-antioxidant, pro-healing pathway. This is all something that our body innately does in ketosis. So this is when people are talking about going keto and the ketogenic diet and all these buzzwords that people are hearing, this is what's going on uh, in the body when people are referring to this way of eating. Oh my gosh. Okay. So many, so many things came up as you were talking. So I guess one question I have is, okay, well, first of all, can you explain, because I've heard this a lot. In fact, the way that I first heard about the ketogenic diet was when I, I was doing this webinar with a nutritionist. It was a, about a, a, an anti-cancer and anti-inflammatory diet, diet. And she brought it up because my understanding is that the ketogenic diet was first studied for like children who had epilepsy and for people who had brain tumors. So what does it exactly mean? Like what's the difference between fueling your brain with ketones and crossing the blood brain barrier? I don't really know what that means versus like if you were eating more carbs. You're right. The modern research uh, in the 20th century on the ketogenic diet was really centered around epilepsy, seizure disorders, mainly children. So that was the explosion of the ketogenic diet in the 20th century. But if you look throughout history, the, the ketogenic diet was actually used a long, long time. Hippocrates even referenced it and referenced fasting, and which fasting will increase ketosis. And that's one of the main benefits of intermittent fasting. And fasting is ketosis and autophagy or cellular repair. So this is seen historically as well. But in modern science in the 20th century, a lot of the research was centered around the seizure disorders and epilepsy. But now in the 21st century, it's moved beyond that. Now researchers are looking at 
yes, even today, kids with seizure disorders and adults with seizure disorders, this is a lifesaver for mm-hmm. many of them. So it's a game changer when they're given no, when the medications aren't working or the doctor doesn't think they're a good candidate for the medications. This can be a lifesaver. Certain genetic disorders like the GLUT1 deficiency or GLUT2, sorry, GLUT1 deficiency, which is basically a glucose transporter. They can't get glucose through the blood-brain barrier. So what's the other option is to get ketones through the blood-brain barrier because they don't have the glucose transporter. So these are genetic and, uh, you know, and seizure disorders that the ketogenic diet is amazing. They have to be on a very strict therapeutic ketogenic diet. That's not really what we're talking about uh, when you're talking about more of the lifestyle health application, the health benefits of it. We have most people, even if they're going through chronic health problems, don't have to be as strict as these kids that mm-hmm. have to depend on this for fuel for their brain or they will have seizures. This is more, let's get the benefits of ketosis, but we have more metabolic wiggle room where we can increase our carbs a little bit more or be less strict about moderating our proteins than these people with specific needs. So that's the whole bigger gamut of this lifestyle application, this wellness application of the ketogenic diet that's being talked about today because the research is being done that, look, this is way more than just seizure disorders. This is something that it's fantastic for calming inflammation, like we mentioned. It's great for improving insulin sensitivity. I mean, you're talking about upwards of 50% of the United States and people in the West have varying forms of insulin resistance, like type 2 diabetes, metabolic syndrome, PCOS, insulin resistance, weight loss resistance. This is a one of the best lifestyle modifications to improve hormonal sensitivity when it comes to insulin. This is applicable to way more people than just seizure disorders, which certainly is relevant for these people. But now it's, wow, look, the research is exciting that you can really hone in on this in a way that improves so many other health problems. Yeah, I mean, I noticed for myself that the biggest change, well, I I shouldn't say the biggest change. The biggest change was my actual blood sugar going down, which was like incredible. But the biggest like day-to-day shift has just been, like you said, getting off of the blood, like the blood sugar roller coaster, getting off of the craving roller coaster. When I first heard about it, like I'm not really, I'm so moderate in everything in my life. I felt like it sounded so extreme and so trendy. And I definitely shed some tears over like not having to give up legumes and grains was really the hardest thing for me. They were just such a staple of my everyday diet. But it is really true that like I just don't feel like Jonesy anymore for for food all the time. Like and I especially for sugar too. And that took me a really Letting go of the sugar, I think, was the hardest thing because for me, it's it's such a psychological issue. It's so much more of like an emotional psychological issue than anything else. Do you have any like recommendations when you're first working with people in terms of addressing their specific triggers as they try to transition off of certain foods? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And when I wrote Ketotarian, I really knew that just from seeing patients all these years, I knew that I had to get the he- their head and heart right before we really make any sustainable health decision in our, our life. Because there's only so long that sheer willpower and gritting of teeth can sustain us. Yeah, And this is not really what I'm focusing on. I'm not focusing on dieting. I'm not focusing on another thing for people to do, to add to their things to do. Mm -hmm. Uh, As far as food (laughs) is concerned, we don't need another one of that. So I wanted to provide solid science and foods, healthy foods to focus on, but the why and the ethos and like what's our relationship with food and our body and all of this stuff, as much as you can get into a book, I wanted to really, and this is what, to answer your question, I just think that our relationship with food and our relationship with our body has to come first because I think of out of self-respect will flow healthier decisions. And even if we eat something that isn't serving us, it's, it's, it's sabotaging us, we don't feel good, it's, it's not moving us towards our goals, even then I think there should be a grace and a lightness to, okay, we ate that, be cognizant, how did it make us feel? 
and then move on. Yeah. Uh, I think that that is better than being shaming and guilting. And that's not going to move to someone to a better decisions for long sustainably. And even if it does, stress and anxiety and shame is not good for our health either. So I, I feel like if we get our head and our heart in check, and we really just say, well, let's reframe our perspective around food and why are we doing the things we're doing and really saying, A, we cannot heal a body we hate. Number two, how about we love ourselves enough to nourish it with good foods? Mm. And if a food doesn't make our us feel good, if a food makes us feel lousy and does all the things we don't want, is it really restrictive to not eat it? I mean, I wouldn't be, feel it's restrictive if someone going and eating dirt in the, in the yard and then those, if, they, if I told them they, can't, they shouldn't have that, they wouldn't feel that's restrictive because it's not serving them and it's just like not a good thing to be having. And I feel like that's where I want that mind shift and that heart shift to go there. And at that point, they're just like, whoa, this is not restrictive at all. I just want to feel awesome. Yeah. And those foods don't make me feel awesome. So this is just logical eating. And that's not to say that's perfection. It's just to say we have our eye on what's what's right and what's what's in alignment with our goals. Yeah. And it's interesting because I think this is the perfect connection to yoga, you know, which is like the main focus of this podcast. But the more you do yoga, the more you pay attention to, you know, moving your body in very specific ways and increasing your proprioception, like the more sensitive you become. And then you can respond like more and more intelligently just because you notice things. And it's the same. I've noticed the same thing with the ketogenic diet. Like I had a really fair, like fairly healthy diet before. I mean, I was, I ate a little bit of fish and a little bit of chicken and mostly everything else was vegetarian. Um, so, but now if I eat, and I did have sugar from time to time, but now if I eat something, like you said, that's not serving me, like I feel it, I'm much more sensitive to the response in my body. I feel it more immediately, or I feel it even like the next day, which, whereas I never really had that before, which is kind of interesting. I think people that are practice yoga tend to be more in alignment with that because of the practice there. And I, what I really wanted, I never thought about it this way, but I wanted ketotarian to be like food yoga for people. It's a, almost like a mindfulness practice of food choices. And then, cause look, you can get your macros on point. You could eat the best plant-based keto foods out there, be ketotarian. But if you have stress and anxiety and guilt and shame around food like what really is or what are you doing right because it to me it's like only a piece of the puzzle and you need to get all of this in alignment with to be fully well so i think yoga and practices like that motions of mindful mindful motions are really a good centering place for people to get in alignment with their body and what be in tune with what their body actually needs and and loves yes and you bring up a good point which is that so yes, yoga people are like very conscious of, you know, many decisions and, but there is also a tendency, I think, and I, I see this like in the larger wellness world as well, a tendency to get obsessive perhaps. Mm -hmm. And I appreciate that that's, you bring that up a lot in the book, like that this isn't, I think that's when I first started the ketogenic diet and I was just sort of, there weren't as many resources and I was just kind of finding websites and who that were written by who knows who, you know, who knows what yeah. their background was. And there can be this like very rigid approach and like measuring ketones all the time and all of these things. And, and that, that was what threw me, me off for it a bunch of times because like I have a six-year-old child, we go to birthday parties. Like she has a birth, she has birthdays. She, you know, there are just times when, or like, there are times when you're desperate and you just go out for pizza. And so I, I just, I just, I really do appreciate that you're kind of like bucking the, the system a little bit. I'm bucking the keto system for sure. I think that that's one thing that I really just don't like about the ketogenic world specifically, but it's in other camps too. I think that it's really honestly born out of health problems and there's so much conflicting information online and it becomes this like endless vortex of conflicting information and 
that I really agree with you. I think orthorexia is what it's called, or various forms of orthorexia, this sort of obsession, this eating disorder, obsession with healthy foods and restriction. Yeah. It's born out of wanting to feel good. I mean, I don't think anyone decides I'm going to become orthorexic. They actually, it's born out of, I feel really lousy. I'm hearing all this information online that this food and this food and this food and this food is going to make me sick. And then they do feel lousy. Like physiologically, they just really are sick. They don't know what's right and what's not. They just end up being having this highly stressed out way of eating, which can become orthorexia and what is looks like wellness is really just an eating disorder. Yeah. And yeah. I think that is something that it's, it's something that I deal with with patients, like consulting with them through functional medicine. And again, but what's your relationship with food? And I get it. I understand where it came from. It came from real suffering and not having direction on what you should be doing. And people are having reactions to even healthy foods today because of the amount of gut problems that people are having. But beyond that, I think that we need to heal your gut, obviously the physical things that need to be dealt with, but so you can tolerate more foods, but this can get out of hand very, very easily where it's masked though too, because it's, it's all this wellness websites, it's all this wellness stuff online. So it looks less eating disorder like, right. but it, it, it can easily become that. So this is a very fine line conversation that we have to have when we're talking about these different things that I'm very cognizant of the fact that this, if this is not done with the sense of love and grace and self-love, it really shouldn't be done because it can become something that, that we don't advocate, which is uh, having an unhealthy relationship with food in our body. Right, right, right. And it sounds like having someone, if you notice yourself going in that direction, having a healthcare provider like you who understands that and is actually compassionate and can maybe like give you the compassion that you compassion that you can't give yourself can kind of guide you back to a healthier, healthier place, a more balanced place. Yeah, I think so. And I think that sometimes people just want someone outside of themselves, like outside of their head, because they're so disillusioned as to what even the heck they should be doing. So I think you're right. Like part of, I think, the healing that happens when I'm seeing a patient over time and we're consulting them is just the being able to pass the stress onto somebody else and having them not have to manage this on their own is therapeutic in and of itself, let alone all the physiological changes that we would be implementing. But just the mental, emotional impact that food is having on people today because of the real health problems and because of maybe this paralysis of analysis and this over information, because you have people that are just, they have too much for their own good and they don't know what to do with it. Totally. And I think that's feeding into this stress and anxiety where this is that double-edged sword of of Dr. Google that I write about in Keto Terry. And it's like great. It's how I I mean most of my patients are online, but I do feel like it's like this endless pit of stressful information for many people. And some people can handle it. Some people are great at handling it and letting it go. Most people, especially when they're already going through health problems, have understandably difficult time handling all this information. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I mean, completely, completely. Yeah. I want to actually touch on one of the main kind of things I think is so unique about ketotarian, which is that you, you know, have this whole written this whole book about how it's possible to do this eating plan. I hate calling it a diet, even though it's called a diet without eating red meat. So I actually thought it was so crazy when I first started doing it that, you know, you'd look at like a typical meal plan and it would be like two eggs and four slices of bacon for breakfast. And I would think to myself, like, wait a minute, I don't understand. I thought I was supposed to be not eating processed meat because I've had plenty of like nutritional consultations with um, cancer nutritionists and things like that. So so do you think that there's going to be some kind of like overall title shift with people realizing that 
or is that, I guess that's probably your hope in writing the book that 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 that, that in the long term staying on red meat is probably like eating a lot of red meat excessive amounts of red meat isn't isn't kind of ca- counteracting the other benefits from the diet mm-hmm. yeah i think long-term wellness absolutely i think that some people have a certain level of health they can do short term they'll see the benefits and i think that's what you're seeing in the ketogenic movement right now is that this honeymoon period exists it's real they are seeing the benefits because they're going off of sugar they're going off of carbs or they're 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 focusing on shifting their body into this optimal metabolic state of ketosis that's great long term what is this doing for someone's health and i see a lot of people that get stuck at this plateau or they don't see the benefits or they feel worse, maybe they did, didn't work for them at all. And I think that that's why I wrote Ketotarian, is really this alchemy of being plant-based, but still getting the benefits of ketosis. So I do think that uh, long-term wellness, instead of it just being another diet to do, mm-hmm. I think that there has to be this marrying of both worlds. And I'm not saying everybody has to be a vegan. I mean, in ketotarian, there's vegan keto options. So if you want to be entirely vegan, you can be. But I really opened it up to, look, there's vegetarian keto options there. There's pescatarian keto options in ketotarian, what I call vegetarian, basically this, you know, still wild caught fish, but plant centric. And then do that for eight weeks, kind of shift your body into being a fat burner for all the people that aren't fat adapted already. Or if you are fat adapted, here's just more plant-based keto options. You don't have to eat bacon and cheese all day to be keto. And then after the eight weeks, you can bring grass-fed beef in if you want. You can carb cycle if you want and do more of a cyclical um, ketogenic approach. I don't think that everybody has to be in ketosis forever and ever. For Obviously, with insulin resistance, people with different inflammatory problems, it does benefit them with being in ketosis longer term. But there are many people that do well with it ebbing and flowing in and out of ketosis, which I like for people that aren't insulin resistant and people that don't don't have inflammatory issues or brain problems like we talked about. Um, and that's, again, this personalization, which is really the heart of functional medicine is how can we tailor this to the individual? Because, and you probably know this being in the yoga world, that you can't make broad sweeping, broad sweeping statements about right. everybody. There's a lot of nuance, but that's the heart of what we're talking about here. How do we make this work for you? How can we have this be sustainable for you? Um, and that's why I wrote the book. So it sounds like you're suggesting, let's say there's just someone out there who's been curious about it, who's listening, but they don't have any specific health problems. And when you mentioned, you know, inflammatory problems, that can often lead to autoimmune diseases, right? So so we're not talking about someone who's like got an active autoimmune disease or, you know, high blood sugar like I did, but but someone who's just sort of curious, they could try they could try this for 8 weeks and see how they feel and then see if they wanted to moderate their carbs more. I mean, this is the thing that's so incredible to me is when I went from when I was actually when I had gestational diabetes and I first had to do that consult where you find out, you know, what how many carbs are typical that people eat in a day and then how many to eat while you have gestational diabetes. And of course I was pregnant. So I followed it to the letter because I wanted my kid to be healthy. And I was like shocked by how many grams of carbs I was actually eating in a day and how many grams of carbs a typical person eats in a day. And so there, there is this, like, I guess my point in saying all this is like, there is this moderate space between what most of us typically eat when we're not thinking about it and being in constant ketosis and people could probably find their place on the spectrum once they're kind of through the eight weeks and and like have worked out the kinks. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that the goal over those eight weeks of being ketotarian, plant-based keto is to create metabolic flexibility. And that allows you the flexibility to kind of go out of ketosis and back there. And I see ketosis for many people to be that metabolic foundation that you can go back to when you want to reset, when you want to calm inflammation levels down, when you want to kind of just bring back to your center. But that doesn't mean that you always have to be there. And I, But everybody based on their own genetics and length of time they've been sick and many other factors have different levels that they can create metabolic flexibility. So some people are just more prone to insulin resistance or they've been insulin resistant for a long period of time or 
they have other health problems, that they created some metabolic flexibility, but they don't create as much as mm-hmm. they would like. So those times, those people may be better off with staying in ketosis longer term because they created some, but they're not going to be fully flexible. They can't get away with increasing carbs really high. Right. Because they'll feel horrible. And this is, again, not about dogma. This is about, no, I feel really lousy when I have this much. So I actually feel better here. So it makes logical sense to not go there. But there are many people that do great with moderating the carbs, even having higher carbs on some days, but they go back to ketosis as this foundation. So if we're looking at grams and if people want to know numbers, like what I say in Ketotarian is to have 55 grams of net carbs or less over the eight weeks. And we start off with about 25 grams. And then from there, they can, after the eight weeks, they can find their carb sweet spot, basically see their tolerance to carbohydrates. Some people are sensitive to carbs, some people aren't. So you can kind of slowly increase it from there and then see how you feel. If you want to test ketones, you can, you don't have to, you can just go off of how you feel. And, you know, up, up to 100 grams, even to 150 grams of carbs from real foods, healthy foods, is something that people can experiment with that experiment with that and see how they feel and we're talking about fruits and sweet potatoes and real foods even like gluten-free grains like rice or something like that some people do great with moderating that it's not the foundation of their meal all seven days a week but it's something that they can have a part of their life when they want to i love that you mentioned sweet potatoes because i literally yeah, that's another thing I've shed tears over is not having my sweet potatoes anymore. And I don't know. I don't know if that will ever happen for me because I do have this, obviously I have this predisposition, this sort of like metabolic challenge. But yes, sweet potatoes and apples. Like that's another one that kills me. I really miss apples. It's funny that when you like on this wellness journey, it's like, that's your wild living. I know, right? Sweet potatoes and apples. (laughs) It's so true. It's like, forget a glass of wine. Like I would be dead the next day at this point in my life. Yeah. Living on the wild side with my apples and sweet potatoes. (laughs) Totally. I'm going to go crazy tonight, you guys. I'm going to have an apple. (laughs) Um, You mentioned monitoring. Um, I actually just do the the urine strips. Sorry. Sorry, everyone, if that's TMI. Um, Do you think that that's sufficient for someone like me who actually needs to pay attention to these things? Or do you recommend me getting that I get the monitor? I think in the short term, urine strips can be fine, especially if somebody are just is just experimenting with this whole keto thing, they may want to just experiment with it and see how they do. It's not the gold standard. And as someone gets more keto adapted, meaning that their body is metabolically flexible, they're burning ketones like a champ. It's actually not a good indication because all it's really telling you is that you're good at peeing out ketones. It's not really telling you if you're burning ketones and it's not measuring beta hydroxybutyrate. It's measuring acetoacetate, which is another type of ketone. It's fine and it works for some people. I would either go off how you feel plus the urine and if that's working for you, fantastic. There's no shame in that. But if you really are looking to say, am I in ketosis? Am I burning things? Because here's what happens. As somebody is more keto adapted, the urine strips can actually go lower and lower and lower on the reader. So it looks for some people, they're not even in ketosis, even though they are. So they may think I'm a failure after mm. they, they're really low on the urine strips. But they're really, if you test in blood or breath, it's it's high, it's normal. It's in the healthy nutritional ketosis range. So for those people, I would recommend, look, that urine strips are actually feeling like they're not doing well on this and they're defeated, like they feel defeated. But that's just because their body is better at burning it and not at peeing it out. So yes, totally TMI, but it's not even TMI for me because I talk about this all the time. (laughs) But uh, it's just, that's something to consider. I think initially, if you want to experiment with keto, you could, the urine is inexpensive. It's quite easy to do. You don't have to like prick your finger like a glucometer or you don't have to buy a breathalyzer like ketonics meter. You can just do the low cost urine strips. Longer term, if you want to know, I think blood is the gold standard. Breath is pretty good. The research is great on that. But I per se, like for myself, I just like to keep it simple, but I'm not managing a health problem. Yeah, so yeah. I, I think I think a lot of times this can be prohibitive for some people that are like, I don't want to have to test every day. I agree. I think that if you can, you if you don't have to test for some health problem, don't test. Just keep it simple. Go off how you feel. Do you have more energy? Are you losing weight? Do you have increased brain function? Are you just feeling better overall? 
that's the natural signs, the natural testings of am I in this fat burning nutritional ketosis state? But you're absolutely right. People with insulin resistance, people with different health problems, they may want to consider testing just to know for sure. Okay. That's yes, that makes total sense. Okay. Another sort of micro level technical question is you talk in the book about lectins that can be on grains, right? And I, I, I actually read Plant Paradox like a while ago and felt fairly overwhelmed by all of it. So I'm just wondering, can you talk a little bit about lectins? Like, what are they? Who are they potentially problematic for? And who are they potentially not problematic for? Because there's so many reputable people out there who still recommend the Mediterranean diet because it's been such a long studied diet. And the Mediterranean mm-hmm. diet certainly calls for lots of grains. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So lectins are proteins that are part of certain plant foods. So the plant's defense mechanism. So you have lectins, phytates, or phytic acid. And these are things that are on grains, in, the, in legumes, in nuts and seeds that can be hard on the immune system, hard on the gut, and create inflammation and gut problems which is what we're seeing today is this rise of this autoimmune inflammation spectrum, which I think our grandparents' generation where they were exposed to less stuff or obviously generations before that, this was less of an issue, although the food supply had changed, has changed in that time period too beyond just, um, you know, just the grains. But I think that it's a nuanced conversation. I don't think that everybody is lectin sensitive, but I do feel like if you're using that as the foundation of your meals, it's not going to work for a lot of people. It's not to say you can't have it. It's not to say that it's a junk food. I wouldn't go for to say that. But again, just because something's better doesn't make it optimal. And I think that these foods really don't offer you a lot of nutrients. You look at the bioavailability, a lot of these lectins and phytic acids, they actually bind to the, a lot of the nutrients, making them less bioavailable. So people would be eating these grains mainly for the fiber, if anything. That would be the main reason why someone would be eating that. But actually, vegetables offer more fiber per ounce than grains do. So being plant-centric, which is what ketotarian is, it's a plant-based ketogenic diet. So there's way more fiber in plant foods in vegetables than there is in grains. So other than the fiber standpoint, which we have a more optimal source of it, there's really no major health reason why somebody be eating grains. There's no essential carbohydrate. There's no ample amount of vitamins in these foods, which is why they typically will add B vitamins and things to these grains, Hmm. specifically the refined ones, because they are so nutrient-less. So they refine them with niacin or other things like that. Now, again, not to say you can't have them. Some people tolerate grains if they're more carb, if they're not carb sensitive, they like having rice, they enjoy having these grains, that's okay. But I, and there's ways to more traditionally prepare these meals that make them more bioavailable and decrease the lectin content. So for grains, if you're going to have them, it's better to get soaked grains and sprouted grains that breaks up some of the lectins and the phytic acid. Pressure cooking also does that too. Hmm. So there's certain like lentils can be pressure cooked that breaks down the lectins and make them more bioavailable. But traditionally, a lot of traditional societies would cook them and would soak them and would sprout them and traditionally prepare them. That does mitigate those things that we talked about, the negative things. So there's definitely ways to have these and enjoy them. And if people aren't carb sensitive and they want to cycle in and out of ketosis, they can have these things. I'm not against them. But definitely it's a a detailed conversation because you don't want to make blanket statements about this and say they're all bad or that they're all great because neither are true. I think it's something in the somewhere in the middle and something that you said uh, a little bit earlier is that you're moderate about things. I'm the same way. I I can't hang my hat on one thing for everybody because I see patients and I know that that's not true. We're all different. That's what I would do. I recommend soaking them, sprouting them for nuts and seeds and grains or using a pressure cooker. And there's certain brands, like there's a brand called Eden Foods. They like their beans and uh, lentils. They actually use pressure cooker to prepare them in the can. So there's definitely better ways to do it. 
And theoretically, you, you could still have those things and still be in ketosis because, yes, they have some carb content. But if you're having them in certain amount, amounts, depending on how carb sensitive you are, you probably could still have that. Mm -hmm. it's, not in, it's not in ketotarian, but it's definitely something you could bring in afterwards if you wanted to. Mm -hmm. I think one of the biggest takeaways for me that I just would love to convey to people is that I went into this kind of kicking and screaming because I, I had a health problem. I, I really didn't want to be on any more medication. Part of the reason I was kicking and screaming is because I felt this like, I, th I bet it's like a very modern American thing, which is like, I didn't want to be limited. <laughs> You know, I like loved having all my choices. I loved having my quinoa and I loved having all these things. And now that things are more limited for me, it's actually, I'm shocked to even say this, but it's made my life a lot easier. It's when I start to sort of say to myself, oh, I could probably just like have, I don't know, a piece of pizza with Sophia tonight or something that things start to, for me anyway, start to get really complicated again when I have to think of like, okay, did I pressure cook those beans mm -hmm. or did I, you know, it's like, it's easier for me personally to just keep my choices a little more limited. Yeah, I think that it's all about perspective. And I think from there, I think you've made that shift from, oh, I have to do this to nope, I actually love feeling great more than I miss this food. Yeah. And I think yeah. that that's the transition that has to happen is that no, when you actually think about it, fatigue, brain fog, insulin resistance, weight gain, all that stuff is not fun. Nobody likes feeling that way. So they have to have a real heart to heart with themselves to say, what do I want more in life? And we're all adults here to have to make that decision for ourselves. And we have to start taking ownership to say, well, look, if that food is moving me away from what I want, then we need to either change our goals and have less expectations and be okay with feeling this way, which is certainly your prerogative, or you need to change what you're doing that's actually sabotaging your goals. That's really what it comes down to. Yeah, no, that's really true. And it takes a certain amount of commitment to get to the place where you, for me anyway, where I did to really start to feel better noticeably. Or I would say like if I fell off the wagon a little too far that I noticed how much worse I, I felt. Yeah. And sometimes you can use those as learning experiences. I almost feel like it's, I see that initially in people's journey, just consulting them. It's sometimes better to go off of what you know serves you and to feel that and to know, look, well, this wasn't worth it. Mm -hmm. or totally. It, you know? Yeah. And then at that point, it kind of informs you. It's like, eh, no, actually, logically, I don't want to do that because I'd rather feel good than feel lousy the next day. And this is a personal decision. For some people, they may think, I'm a okay with feeling lousy for a little yeah, bit. And, yeah. I, and, and then they made that choice. And there's really no shame in that, but they just need to eat it logically and move on. And I think a lot of this dieting shame and dogma brings about this binge eating sort of approach to where you have to have it and you have tons of it and then you feel horrible about it. And, and then the stress about it is not good for your health either. So it's about undoing that, that, that diet training that we've been brought up with. Yes. No, that's so true. Like, because I have been doing this for so long and I have like you know, trailed off when I've been on vacations and things like that. Because I know how I'll respond to certain foods so much more clearly, certain foods are just not a temptation anymore. And then certain foods are like, it's still a temptation for me when like the whole family is eating ice cream. And every once in a while, I'll have ice cream and I will totally 100% enjoy that ice cream in the moment. And I might feel kind of crummy the next day. But it's like, I had fun. I was with my family. And this is not going to change my life that I had ice cream once every, you know, three months or something like that. Right. Yeah. And we all have that own own wiggle room. Some people will really pay for it and they know they'll be in bed for days if they have something off yeah. of what that works for them. Yeah. Like that's that's too much for them. They're not gonna do that. It's all about that wake up call of like what we'll have to what we'll feel like if we have something. So it's definitely something that everybody has to come to grips with their relationship with food and what they want in life. And I think from there will flow more logical, healthy choices. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I have to come to one of my continued not super healthy choices, though, which is which is dairy. I really love my dairy. And I was reading in your book and you're pretty much, it's pretty clear that dairy in the long term, you think is probably not a sustainable, great food for most people. Is there any like 
could I be an exception where it's actually works okay for my body? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, again, this is a nuanced conversation too, because it's not so much dairy as much as what we've done to the dairy that I think is the problem because we've, you know, the cows are fed corn and the corn is GMO and then what the cow is injected with and the quality of life of the cow and all this stuff. But then it's down to the high, the crossbreeding of the cows and this beta A1 casein that's seen in 90, 99% of the cows in the United States, where it's this new form of casein when you talk about the totality of cows and human health and the consumption of dairy. It's not so much the casein, it's this new form of casein that is the mismatch between the world around us, which has changed you know, very dramatically in a very short period of time. And our biochemistry, our genetics just hasn't changed in you know 10,000 years, research say, researchers say. So beta A2 casein, the other one, the other, the more original ancient casein is still available in certain dairy, certain breeds of cows, certain sources of dairy. Do I have to move to Europe to, to be able to continue to eat my dairy? <laughs> go find question. a French cow, <laughs> buy a French cow. Now, that, that's a great time that we live in. It's the other side of the double-edged sword of the internet. It's you have access to things that are amazing that a generation or two ago, you wouldn't have access. Like, I feel like the 80s and 90s were like this vortex of us knowing information and like not having the full capabilities to get this good stuff. And then you see the explosion of these health problems. But now really, we have the option to order things online Mm. uh, or get them at the health food store where access is improving. And you can get A2 milk and A2 cheeses and A2 different things and grass-fed these things, which right. a lot of the grass-fed things are predominantly A2 as well. And the you know New Zealand butter is predominantly A2. So you can get better forms of these things that I find most people, the problem is with the A1 casein, which is due to the modern breeding of cows and less to do with inherently the dairy itself. So... I don't think that everybody has a problem with dairy, but I do think that the people that do have a problem with dairy, there's even a way to go around it and get the more original casein dairy sources that they can have a problem with. And fermented dairy tends to be more tolerable anyway. So cheeses, good quality organic grass-fed cheeses, even if it's not A2, I find that people do better with it. Yogurts, kefirs or kefirs, those tend to do better because the fermentation mitigates any problem that people would have with the dairy itself. So it's not a black or white thing. I don't think everybody needs to avoid dairy. It's definitely a great source of fat-soluble vitamins like A, D, and K2. People are extremely low in that. So uh, if you tolerate dairy, just get good sources of it. That's all. So I don't have to spend my money on like really good bottles of wine anymore because I don't have that. I'll just spend all my money on my fancy dairy. <laughs> there you go. If that's important to you, I don't like dairy. I know I'm a freak, but you're right. You're in the majority. Most people, it's like the one food that they're like, what? My cheese, my yogurt. It just feels kind of luxurious, I think. You know, it, it, is, it is yogurt for me. It's like um, if, if I'm with my family and they're all eating like cake if I can just have like a little bit of dairy, I feel like, I don't know, it feels somehow luxurious. Yeah. I'm not yeah sure. I, and I love, like, I love the coconut yogurt. I love the almond milk yogurt. I love the vegan cheeses out there. Like Kite Hill has some amazing yes, No, spreads. Kite Hill is amazing. They're amazing. Yeah. yeah. So I love all of those dairy-free options that really taste amazing. And yeah, so that, that's, that's also the time that we live in. We have more plant-based dairy options out there. As far as cheeses, the only thing about like something like almond milk, I, I or even coconut milk, I always notice that they're fairly high in carbs. So, do you recommend just making your own so that because I don't know what they're doing, but it's like <laughs> I don't know how they're processing it. But yeah, a lot of times they're adding added sweeteners to it. So just look at the label. Look, like there's a great brand called Malk or Milk M A L K that's just plain. There's no added stuff to it, and it's not just the sweeteners. But it's also like the emulsifiers and the guar gums and the carrageenan and all that other stuff, too, they add in that aren't so great. So you can make your own, which is relatively simple. Yeah. Or you can get these certain brands out there and support brands that are keeping it pretty transparent and simple as far as the ingredients are concerned. Okay, I'll go back. Okay, last, 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 last question, I promise. So soy, I was really, I'm just so on board with your whole soy 
dialogue. I mean, for obvious reasons, like I had estrogen, <laughs> fed breast cancer. So I was told by the nutritionist that I work with to kind of look at soy as a condiment, that it's okay to eat it, you know, once in a while in small portions. But I wanted to ask you uh, if you feel the same way about miso, like because it's fermented, it, is it better um, or do we do you still still just have the same issues? No, in ketotarian, I allow for, I say it's it's something that they can have in, especially for the vegan keto eater that's limited on protein sources, complete protein sources. I think fermented soy can be great. So I think that tempeh, natto, miso, as long as long as it's organic and non-GMO and look for any any added stuff, I think can be great. I, I don't think, again, the fermentation process helps with it. And these whole food sources, these more natural, simple forms of soy tend to have more of a modulatory impact on estrogen. They don't necessarily breed estrogen dominance, um, but they more of just a, a balancing impact of it. But I wouldn't recommend like the soy isolate, like soy burgers with tons of junk in them. Um, that's GMO. I, I, I think those are problematic for many people, but uh, the fermented soy can be great. Awesome. Okay. Well, thank you so, so much. It was just such a treat for me to get to talk to you. You know, obviously it's been years of me trying to figure this all out on my own. And I know this will be so, so helpful to everyone listening. So thank you so much for being here. And thank you for writing this book. I love it. Thank you so much for having me. As promised, I'm going to talk a little bit now about my own keto sort of journey. I sound like I'm on an episode of The Bachelor when I say that. My journey. So if you've listened to any of this podcast, you know that I am a breast cancer survivor. I was diagnosed four years ago. And as any cancer survivor knows, that experience makes you assess everything in your life. And one of the easiest things to assess is what you are eating on a daily basis and how you're moving your body. So I started doing that and was introduced to Rebecca Katz, who is a wonderful cookbook author. I've had her on the program before, and she's written several cookbooks, one of which is called The Cancer Fighting Kitchen. So I was doing a webinar with Rebecca Katz, and she mentioned the ketogenic diet. I had never heard of it. And she mentioned that some people who were on this call who were coping with brain tumors were trying this diet. And so I thought, well, I should look into this. If there's any kind of diet that is, uh, you know, an anti-tumor new approach, I should look into it. And I started doing that. And then I think I'm pretty sure the next thing is I discovered Tim Ferriss's podcasts about the ketogenic diet. He has a doctor on a, on a few episodes. I believe his name is Dominic D'Agostino. And so I started listening to that and I thought, like, whoa, this sounds wackadoodle. I'm not super disciplined. I don't know if I could do this. I remember the doctor was saying he ate oysters for breakfast. That completely turned my stomach. I'm such a little carb toast eater for breakfast, at least I used to be. But as I kept reading and reading and cutting out sugar, I, I kept thinking about it. And then about a year later, I had to have a diabetes test because when I was pregnant with my daughter, I had gestational diabetes. And if you have gestational diabetes, you are then required to get an HbA1c, which is a blood test, to uh, test check your blood glucose levels. And you're supposed to get one once a year. So it was time for me to get my HbA1c. And I thought I really had my diet all in line. I was doing whole grains and legumes and, and lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of fruits and veggies. And, and occasional protein here and there. I was still eating some meat, but really very, very little. And I was eating small meals throughout the day. And I can remember we were in Maui on vacation when I got the results of, of my blood test on, on my phone, and I was shocked. I was in the range for prediabetes, like very low range, but still I was in the range for prediabetes despite, you know, working out more than I'd ever worked out and paying more attention to every single thing I put into my body more than I ever had before. I was pretty devastated because there is a correlation between high insulin levels and cancer. And, you know, there will always be a fear of recurrence for me. So I thought, okay, I really got to get this online. I actually still had a blood glucose meter 
because I had one when I was pregnant from having gestational diabetes. So I pulled it out and started testing my blood sugar again and was pretty shocked to find the spikes that I would have after eating like small amounts of carbs, like one tortilla at lunch with black beans and cheese and avocado. And I would have a huge blood sugar spike. And so I started to really tune into that. I met with some nutritionists. I met with my primary care physician. I met with my oncologist. And I decided to just keep monitoring and keep lowering my carbs. Years later, now that I've had several blood tests and have gone on and off the wagon and all of these different things, I now know that I am just incredibly sensitive to carbs right now. And I don't know if it is a genetic predisposition or if it's from tamoxifen because there also has been some correlation between tamoxifen and metabolic disorders. I don't know if it's the genetic predisposition and tamoxifen. I don't know if it's my age. I don't know what it is, but it's there. And so I did start going on the ketogenic diet after that initial blood test and meeting with all of my doctors and starting to do my my finger pricks throughout the day. And I I mean, I was like miraculous for a few reasons. I mean, my, my blood sugar leveled out really, really well. And then what additionally, what I started to find was I just was less hungry all the time than I was when I was eating small meals throughout the day. I, I really started to get down to like three solid meals a day without snacking. And I wasn't on, I wasn't hungry at night after dinner, which I used to always feel hungry in. So that was a great, great response that my body had. But I will be blatantly honest. It it was not easy for me because it's a, it is a very extreme, for me, it was a very extreme change. And as a, like a very moderate eater, someone who loved my grains and loved my legumes and loved like occasionally like eating chips when I went out for Mexican food with my family, it just felt really limiting. So I definitely would do keto for a while and then kind of go off of it. Like typically that would happen on vacation. And then I would go back on and there's what they call the keto flu when you go back on and I would go through the keto flu, which where you feel terrible for a few days. And I would think like, oh, I'm never doing this again. And then six months later, I would do the same thing. It took me another year before I got another blood test for my HbA1c. And I, after a year of, even though I had fallen off the wagon from time to time, after a year of doing the ketogenic diet, my blood sugar came back really great, really low, not pre-diabetic anymore. So while that was very encouraging, I have to admit that it almost gave me this, like, license to try the carbs again. <laughs> and so again, I would like, you know, eat the tortilla at lunch or have some pizza with my daughter or go for sushi, which was like the worst for me, white rice. And you forget that white sushi rice has a little bit of sugar in it. And I would test my blood sugar and sure enough, the spikes would be terrible. So since that time, I have maintained the ketogenic diet really well for about six months, I would say. And I finally have gotten to the point where I don't feel like I'm missing out on things as much. And I've had another recent blood test and my HbA1c has gone down even more. So I'm at this interesting point right now that I am experimenting with where I've clearly had success from this plan and I may have to be on something very, very close to this, the strict regimen that I'm on right now for a very long time, if not for the rest of my life. But I also am just very cognizant of the fact that I don't want to deprive myself too much because when I deprive myself, I in the, when I've deprived myself in the fa- past with, with the ketogenic plan, I have then kind of not, I wouldn't say, like not binge in the sense of like binging and purging, but I will say when I've fallen off the wagon in the past, I've sometimes like, you know, just really gone crazy with the carbs. And then I feel terrible afterward. So I am finding that I will occasionally, I will sort of set a time for myself, usually the weekend, where if I am eating out with my family and there are chips on the table, I'll let myself have a few chips and then I'll test my blood sugar. Or 
I will admit it's kind of clear from the from the podcast. A few weeks ago, I let myself actually have some ice cream with my family. We did like an after after dinner ice cream walk down to the ice cream shop and I I just had some ice cream. And I am happy that I'm finding a certain amount of metabolic flexibility that Will Cole mentioned. So I'm trying to find this balance between mostly eating this way because I do feel really, really good and because I don't miss some of the sort of mindless, fluffy carbs anymore. And then also just allowing myself to live and not go crazy and not feel guilty when I am not perfect because that's sort of a tendency that I have in my life anyway, and especially around my body. I've never had a specific eating disorder, but I am like so many women in that I definitely have some body dysmorphia and body dysfunctionality. And uh, yeah, just I don't, that's not why I'm doing this. So that's my story. I hope it's helpful to you. I sometimes think about doing some kind of program where I share kind of, I don't know, how I did it or how to do it and and ways to bridge the difficulty in the beginning because I know how hard it can be. So that might happen down the line. If you happen to be interested in something like that, some kind of program that I could put together and would include recipes and things like that, let me know. Okay, thanks for listening and uh, hope you made it this far. And until next week, enjoy your practice. i mm-hmm.